Bible as well as some sheets of paper along with that Bible. In one of those sheets, you should have an outline and that outline will help you to follow along in the sermon. More importantly, you should have a Bible and if you could keep your Bibles open to Genesis chapter 46 and 47, uh, that's the passage we are looking at today. Uh, Hopefully, as long as there are no technical difficulties, uh, any Bible reference I make that is not in Genesis 46 to 47 should appear on your screen, so that will save you from having to flip uh, the Bibles constantly. Uh, but as we begin, why don't we ask God for his help to understand his word. So let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you are indeed our help in ages past. You are a secure dwelling place. Come here today as we gather together. Uh, you pray that you'll help us uh, to understand your word and to allow your word to pierce our hearts once again. Uh, please, will you help us to see that you are indeed a great God uh, who is always with us in Christ? And so, by your spirit, will you be changing us? We pray all this in Jesus' most precious name. Amen. Now, Crystal grew up in a non Christian family. She goes to university where for the first time she hears the gospel. She isn't sure about this whole Christianity thing yet. She's got plenty of questions. But she is intrigued. So she keeps on exploring, just trying to figure out who this Jesus is. Uh, Finally, after about a year, she is convinced that the claims of Jesus are true. He is indeed the Messiah, the Son of God. So Jesus has a claim on her life. She confesses him as Savior and Lord. Her parents find out and they're not quite sure what to make of it. And things are calm for a while. However, her parents begin to question just how much time she's spending in church. They feel that she needs to be concentrating more on her career progression. And she needs to be working harder to hit those bonus targets. She tries to explain to them that her priorities have changed, but they don't understand. They think she's being a bit reckless with her future and that she needs to be listening to older, wiser heads. Then a grandparent passes away. She is expected to offer up food and joss paper as a way to appease the spirits and to win merit for her ancestors. And her parents are horrified when she says that as a Christian, she can't participate in those rites. So they pile the pressure on her. She's brought them shame, they say. She's betrayed them. She tries to explain, but they won't hear a word. All they can see that she's not giving them any love, any respect, any obedience. It's a very trying time and she feels all alone. She begins to doubt whether she has chosen the right path. She still wants to trust God, but she isn't sure where he is leading her. Mark grew up in a Christian family. His father is an elder in the church and has faithfully tried to instruct his family in the ways of the Lord. 
Nevertheless, Mark has always struggled with depression and guilt. He often feels that he cannot measure up. Although he is a well-regarded Bible study leader, he isn't sure that God always looks out for him. After all, God looks at the heart and he will have seen all the terrible things in his heart. Things go in cycles for him. You know, he'll go through a period of time where he believes the gospel. He delights that Christ has justified him, that there is no condemnation in Christ. But then there are times where he wonders if he can just bear those disappointments of unfulfilled dreams. Or the shame of past mistakes, past sins. Sometimes he flirts with the idea of just simply abandoning Christianity altogether. Sometimes as he feels as if he has no hope for the future. Sometimes he isn't sure if he'll make it to the end. He finds it hard to believe that God has the resources to ensure that he continues as a Christian. Crystal and Mark are composite pictures, but they are real people that I know. And you might know people like Crystal and Mark too, or even be in situations similar to Crystal and Mark, and so you identify with their doubts. You know, as I struggle to live a life of obedience to God, will he look out for me? Can he look out for me? Now, last week, we got ourselves a happy ending, didn't we? You know, we witnessed the reunion of Joseph and his brothers. There is forgiveness and reconciliation. There are tears of joy. There is God's glory. It's magnified as Joseph explains how God has been working through the bad to bring about the good. That God has placed Joseph in Egypt so that he might become governor and therefore rescue his family from famine. And the story of Joseph, we could have ended there, couldn't it? We've got our happy ending. And yet, the story of Joseph doesn't end there. It goes on, doesn't it? And clearly, the story of the Bible doesn't end there. We, we haven't even gotten out of Genesis yet. There is still struggle. The journey has just begun. God is still working out his promises to Abraham. that He's going to make them a great nation. He's going to bring them to the promised land. And he will bless them. Now, some of you today here are fairly new Christians. You know, you've put your faith in Christ sometime in the last two years, maybe even in the last two months. And that felt like a happy ending, didn't it? You know, you knew the joy of forgiveness, of a renewed friendship with God. You saw how God had turned your life around from revolving around you to revolving around Him. And yet, that isn't the end, is it? You know the gospel, but you still struggle to keep applying the gospel in every area of your life. The journey has just begun. And God, God is working out His gospel promises. He's going to gather His redeemed people, bring them to the promised land of the new age and new creation where we get to enjoy the blessings of our resurrection bodies and eternal life with our Creator. 
So in today's passage, God is setting into motion the next stage of his grand plan of redemption. And as he does that, he wants to remind his people that he is looking out for them. He will see them through. And it's the same for us. We await the final stage of God's redemption when Christ returns. And God wants to remind us that he is looking out for us. He will see us through. Until then, we, like Jacob's family, are to be his pilgrim people. Now, if you close your Bibles, then could you open them back to Genesis chapter 46 on page 47? And we're going to look at today's passage under three headings. God's promise for his pilgrims, God's provision for his pilgrims, and God's preservation of his pilgrims. So firstly, God's promises for his pilgrims. God's promises for his pilgrims. Let me just read from the end of chapter 45, verse 28. And Israel, Israel is another name for Jacob. Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. Now we need to understand right from the start that Jacob is not emigrating simply in search of greener pastures. You know, this isn't a guy who is fed up with the country. He's not saying, I- I've had enough. I'm leaving. It's your fault that, you know, there's a brain drain going on. Remember, Jacob is an old, old man. Later on in Genesis chapter 47, verse 9, we learn that at that point, he is a 130 years old. Imagine then what a move must mean for Jacob. You know, he's going to leave behind all that is familiar to him. All the memories of his children's favorite hiding spots. All the local knowledge of where the best watering spots are. All the attachments, you know, such as Rachel's burial place, all that is just going to be left behind. And Jacob, he will have to start all over again in a foreign land. Just imagine your own parents doing that. I mean, I don't think my own parents would even want to leave Kuching for KL. They probably think KL is foreign enough. And remember what Jacob has gone through. Now, here's a guy who has left, who has fled from his homeland before. You might remember, if you were here last year, that we learned about how he deceived his father Isaac. He got the blessing, and that he had to run away to escape the wrath of his brother Esau. And by God's grace, after many long years away from the land, he made it back. He's back in Canaan, the land that God had promised to give to his family going through all that, why, why risk it all again? Why, why uproot? You know, it's not, it's not like he's moving to Australia to enjoy the sunny beaches and things like that. He's going to Egypt. He's a place where his own grandfather, Abraham, had bad experiences. Furthermore, his own dad, Isaac, was forbidden by God to go to Egypt in the previous famine. 
And you can find that on, in Genesis chapter 26, verse 1 to 3, and it should also be on the screen. Now there was a famine in the land, besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerah, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you, and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring, I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. So everything, everything in Jacob's history, everything in Jacob's body, would have been screaming at him to play safe and stay where he was. Jacob, he knows that this is a huge, huge move. Is it really a good idea to leave the land of promise, even if it means reuniting with Joseph? So he does a wise thing. At the border town of Beersheba, he makes sure that this move has a stamp of approval from God. Verse 1, he offers sacrifices which is somewhat equivalent to us today, offering up a prayer to God for guidance and direction. It's comforting, isn't it, to see Jacob acting so maturely? It only took him about 130 years. And I hope it takes you and me less time than that to realize that we need to express our dependence on God in everything, big or small. And when I was looking at these verses in my prep, uh, it dawned on me that I haven't been as prayerful as I should be. And so here is a little reminder for all of us. Now God responds, verses 2 and 3. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here am I. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. God reassures Jacob that it is indeed his will for him to leave Canaan for Egypt. He identifies himself as the God of your father to remind, that, to remind him that he is indeed the covenant God, the God who makes and keeps promises to his fathers. And now he makes promises to Jacob. Verse 3 again. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. I'm going to make you into a great nation, Jacob. Yeah, even in Egypt, I'm going to make you into a great nation. That hasn't changed. And I'm going to be with you throughout. That hasn't changed either. I'm committed to bringing you and my people back into the land. And then God makes a very precious, very personal promise to Jacob. You're you're going to make it to Egypt. You're going to see your beloved son, In fact, I'm going to grant you this precious blessing of a peaceful death with your very own son gently closing your eyes as was custom in those days. 
here is evidence of a God who doesn't only care for his people, but cares for individuals. God is exercising his heavenly fatherhood in caring for his earthly father. He generously blesses Jacob in this particular way. So Jacob has got stamp of approval, and so he obeys verses 5 to 7. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones, and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters. All his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Now notice that little detail in verse 5. The son of Israel carried Jacob, their father. So it seems as if Jacob is weak and completely dependent physically at this point. But he is stepping out in faith. He is stepping out in obedience. He has heard God's promises and he trusts him. Now perhaps Jacob remembered the last time he was leaving home or more accurately was running away from home. In chapter 28, verse 10 to 17, you don't have to turn to it, but I'll remind you. Uh, as he's running away from home, le- uh, fleeing from Esau, he passes through Beersheba as well. And on his way out, God appeared to him in a vision and promised him that he would bring him back and that he would be with him throughout. And of course, that's exactly what God did. God has already vindicated himself. In Jacob's eyes, God has nothing to prove. God speaks, he obeys. Now as Christians, we too have gospel promises. God has spoken them in his word. And he has told us that we have a heavenly destination. And God is committed to getting us there. But sometimes God takes us on unexpected routes, doesn't he? And that can be quite scary. And we are like Jacob. We've got our own attachments to things. We've got our own comfort zones. We are weak, not strong. And we can remember things in our past and recall all too vividly the times where we've made mistakes, where we've sinned, where we've failed. God knows all that. He knows it's scary when he calls on us to count everything as loss and to press on for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. And at such times, he calls on us to draw on his gospel promises to sustain us. He wants us to rely on him. Now have a look at Matthew chapter 28, verse 16 to 20 for a moment. Again, it should appear on your screen. Matthew chapter 28, verse 16 to 20, a familiar passage to many of us. And I'll just read it. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So the disciples, the followers of Jesus, they're gathering around Jesus. And Jesus gives them this stirring command to go and make disciples of all nations. But among those people gathered there, there were some who doubted. And so Jesus gives a promise alongside his command. Here is that precious promise in verse 20. I am with you always to the end of an age. The Lord Jesus has promised to be with us through to journey's end. And who is this Jesus? Verse 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He is the risen Lord. That's who is with us. God made it clear to Jacob that he was as much God in Egypt as in Canaan. It's not like there's going to be some immigration checkpoint in Egypt that's going to stop God from entering. And Jesus, Jesus makes it clear that he has authority wherever we are, whatever stage of the journey we're at. And we need to constantly remind ourselves of that. You know, when we hear jokes made at our expense because we're Christians, I am with you always. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. When people turn against us because we do what is pleasing to the Lord, I am with you always. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. When we feel crushed and tired and afflicted, I am with you always. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. God's promises in Christ sustains his children. So let's step out in faith and obey him. Now come back with me to Genesis 46. And you notice that we are given this long genealogy in verses 8 to 27. Now we're not going to dwell too long on the genealogy here, but we're just going to make two points. Point number one, if you just for regular members of this congregation, if you look at verse 13, you will see a familiar name there. And of course, we want to ask, the big question we want to ask is, what is this genealogy doing here? Now, it seems as if the writer simply wants to make it clear that Israel's entire household has made it to Egypt. If you look at verse 20, it tells us, 27, sorry, it tells us that 70 members of uh, the household of Jacob made it to Egypt, and 70 is the number of completion. So here is the nation of Israel in microcosm. See, from less than 100 people entering into Egypt, we know, of course, that they grow into a multitude. For the Israelites reading this account, here is one very clear instance in which God has fulfilled his promise. Now we come to our next heading. So secondly, God's provision for his pilgrims. God's provision 
for his pilgrims. Verse 28. Jacob had sent Judah ahead of him with Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen, and they came into the land of Goshen. Now, having seen a more mature Jacob, isn't it wonderful that we also see what appears to be a more mature Judah? Judah, you might remember, was the chief culprit in separating Jacob and Joseph in chapter 37. And here he is, he's leading the way to reunite Jacob with Joseph. So what an encouragement it is for us to see that God is in the business of transforming lives. So let's read on, verses 29 and 30. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went out to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. So at last, the, the family reunion is complete. You know, the writer doesn't make too big a deal about it, but you can feel the intense emotion just dripping in these two verses. But Joseph and his God, they've got unfinished business. Now, all throughout the story of Joseph, God has been using him to take care of his people. And once again, God is going to use Joseph to provide for his pilgrims. So in 47 verse 2, Joseph arranges for five of his brothers to represent the family. This appears to be the first time they meet Pharaoh in person. And Israel and God's people have never had a happy history together, which makes the Pharaoh's generosity in 47 verse 5 and 6 all the more amazing, verse 5. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know of any able man among them, put them in charge of my livestock. And this is exactly the outcome Joseph wanted. And now notice, notice how God is working behind the scenes to get them there through the shrewdness and integrity of Joseph. In 46 verse 34, you know, Joseph warns his brothers that Egyptians detest shepherd shepherd is what they are. What they are. You know, it's a bit like urban folk looking down on the kampong boys. It's like me saying to, oh, look, it's Maven, Maven from Perlis. Oh man, that's terrible. And, and oh, yo, some more, what, you tell me she's a legal student. Ah, yo, no, no chance already. But, but he wants them to be truthful. Verse 33, he says to them, don't, don't hide your occupations, he tells his brothers. Just, just do your bit, and I'll do my bit. And what does he do? In verses 31 and 32, Joseph says that he's going to tell his boss beforehand that they are shepherds, and he's going to smooth the way, so to speak. So when Joseph finally speaks to his boss, in 47 verse 1, uh, notice that he deliberately draws attention to the fact that they are in Goshen. And Goshen is a fertile part of Egypt that is also far from the center of Egyptian 
society. So by settling his people there, they will not be in danger of assimilating into Egyptian culture and religion. They will be allowed to grow in numbers and to thrive away from the centers of power and influence. And yet at the same time, they get to earn some money. You see, they are the ideal candidates, the natural candidates to take care of Pharaoh's livestock. And we know from chapter 47, verse 11 and 12, as well as chapter 47, verse 27, that his plan works. You see, Israel, they go to Goshen, they gain possessions, they're fruitful, they multiply greatly. Joseph's plan works. God's plan works. God is good. He is providing for his pilgrims. Now, this doesn't mean, of course, that everything will immediately turn out all right just because we do the right thing. The Bible speaks often in other places of suffering and persevering, of having to take up our cross. And sometimes things will only be put to right at the end of time. But God will always provide in a way that furthers his purposes and makes us more like Christ. And in his goodness, he sometimes intervenes in quite amazing ways. Uh, Just this week, I've heard a story from a friend of mine who works in a missions organization. And uh, one of their team leaders was supposed to go to Myanmar. Uh, But he ended up being stuck in Bangkok because his passport went missing and then his visa couldn't get approved. Well, three years ago, this guy's parents had hosted a Thai student. And when she heard that uh, he was having problems, this Thai girl called up his mum, her mum rather, uh, her mum being some sort of person of influence. And so the very next day, everything just like that was sorted out. How did this Thai girl find out about the situation? Well, would you believe it? She stumbled onto it on Facebook. As the team leader himself said, he had no idea what this girl's mum did. But God knew. And God was already making preparations three years ago. God is good. He is providing for his pilgrims. And pilgrim people are meant to be distinctive people. The Israelites, they're not Egyptians. They're meant to look different from Egyptians. And that's why God has placed them in Goshen to prevent assimilation. And it's the same with us. God does provide, but not so that life would be easy. Not so that we can just gain all sorts of possessions or influence. Now, God's provision is for pilgrim people to look different from the world. Titus 2 verse 11 to 14 sums it up well. Let me just read it. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, 
who are zealous for good works. And I wonder if that's why we're told a little detail back in the genealogy of chapter 46. Just come with me back to chapter 46 and look at verse 10. 46 verse 10. And we're told this little detail that Shaul is the son of a Canaanite woman. And that suggests that perhaps God's people was in danger of losing their distinctiveness. So perhaps God brings them out of Canaan for the moment to protect them. And it's a good time for us to pause here at this point and ask if God is providing us with opportunities to be distinctive. You know, are we being called to be more patient and generous? Are we called to refrain from gossip and drunkenness? To be humble? To be more other people-centered? Is God providing you with situations in the workplace, in your college, maybe even in church, to show that you belong to Him? Now this image of a pilgrim people, it comes up again when Jacob presents his father before the Pharaoh in verses 7 to 10. So imagine the scene. You know, there's a frail man who can hardly walk and he stands before the most powerful man in the land. But since Jacob is the head of the covenant family, he knows that God is with him. Not Pharaoh. He's not afraid. He knows who he is. He doesn't need the blessing of Pharaoh. Instead, in verse 7, he's the one who blesses Pharaoh. Now God said that he will be a blessing. He will bring blessing to the nations through this family. And we're going to see how he's going to do that in a moment. But here, Jacob just wants to make it clear who he is. If you look at verse 8, 47 verse 8, And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of the years of your life? In other words, he's just asking, How old are you? And in response to Pharaoh's question, Jacob draws attention to the fact that his father and grandfather are sojourners or pilgrims. In verse 9, And so is he. Verse 9. And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. And they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. He's basically saying, Yes, he's had a difficult life. Yes, it's probably his own fault. And yes, he probably hasn't sojourned as long as his forefathers. But it doesn't matter. He is a pilgrim, just like them. And so as a pilgrim, he does not belong to Egypt. And actually, he doesn't belong to Canaan either. Hebrews 11, our New Testament reading today, tells us that he is a stranger and exile in this world, in verse 16, we learn, we read that he desires a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, 
for he has prepared for them a city. See, this world is not our home. We only sojourn here, members of the new covenant in Christ. Looking forward to the secure inheritance we have in the heavenly city that God has prepared for us. Thirdly, God's preservation of his pilgrims. God's preservation of his pilgrims. And we'll see that immediately come out in verses 12 and 13. The contrast is apparent. Let me just read verse 12 and then verse 13 for you. Verse 12. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. Now contrast that with verse 13. Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and, that, and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. How severe was this famine? Well, the long section in verses 14 to 26 tells us, you see, three times the Egyptians, they go to Jacob, sorry, they go to Joseph to plead for food. Uh, the first time they go, uh, they spend all their money. But eventually they run out, don't they? And so second time, they sell their livestock instead. Eventually they run out of that too. So the third time they go, they're really desperate now. They sell their land, but not just their land, but their own selves. That's how bad this famine was. The Egyptians had no means to fend for themselves. The only way they could survive was if the state bailed them out. Even the priests, verse 22, they had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. They were dependent on Pharaoh as well, even though they kept their land. But Jacob, Jacob and his big family, they're all catered for. They've got nothing to worry about. They have food and shelter. All of Egypt is being enslaved. The family of Jacob, ironically, is free in this foreign land. God is preserving them. And what a reversal for Joseph himself as well. Just as he is sold, purchased, and enslaved when he first enters Egypt, now the Egyptians are being sold, purchased, and enslaved by him. Now we need to recognize that when Joseph takes the Egyptians as servants, he is not exploiting them. You see, what Joseph is actually offering them is stable employment under a good master. This is considered better than risking going out on your own. So we're not talking about you know, modern age slavery here. Actually, it's an act of charity. And that's why the Egyptians can say in verse 25, in verse 25, they said to Joseph, you have saved our lives. To them, this is rescue, not oppression. And in verse 24, Joseph makes sure that they have the means to generate income by allowing them to retain 80% of their land. 
God's preservation of his pilgrims has spilled over to the Egyptians, even as he bestows his special favor on his people in verses 27 to 28. As we come to the end of this passage, we move back to the realm of the personal in verses 29 to 31, where we witness the remarkable faith of these pilgrims. Verse 29. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. And on his deathbed, Jacob remembers God's promises to bring him and his people back to Canaan. And so he calls on Joseph to swear that he will bring the body, his body, back to the promised land. As Jacob stares in the face of death, he is still thinking preservation, not termination. So he has complete trust that God will keep his people. God will keep his people. He will keep Crystal and Mark and you and me, even though the journey He will hang on to us even as we hang on to him. As Crystal struggles to honor her parents in a way that ultimately honors God, God will honor her. God doesn't promise to remove her from all the pain that is involved, but God promises to be with her throughout. As Mark, Mark struggles with God through his period of depression and guilt. God says he's going to see him to the end. Mark just has to keep on mining the riches of the gospel. And God will preserve you and me as we hang on to his gospel promises. As we trust in Jesus. As we wait for him. We're not at the end of the story yet, but there is a happy ending in store. Philippians 1 verse 6 And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion the day of Jesus Christ. God says he will keep us to the end. And so for us today, let us desire that better country. Let us look for that heavenly city God has prepared a place for us there. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that from the very beginning, you had a grand plan of redemption. And that in Christ, you had chosen us before the foundation of the world.
Lord, we thank you that you are a God who indeed keeps your promises, who provide for us, who preserves us. And so, Father, would you help us to keep running the race well, to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Please, will you help us to be pilgrim people here and now? Help us to be distinctive in the way we live, in the way we think, in the things we prioritize, in the way we act. Please, will you help us to keep desiring that heavenly city? And Lord, we look forward to that day when we will finally see you face to face. So until then, will you help us to keep encouraging each other that as long as it is caught today, to keep spurring each other to, to good deeds and love, even as we see that day approaching. We pray all this in Jesus' most precious name.